Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Rees, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Welcome back to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, and today I am joined by Chief Charles Chuck Downey. Chief is a, a current chief of the FDNY Fire Academy at Randalls Island, or otherwise known as The Rock. He joined the FDNY in 1990. He's entering his 33rd year in the department. His brother, Joe Downey, is a 37-year veteran and the battalion commander of the FDN Rescue Battalion. And together, they are the sons of the legendary FDNY Chief Ray Downey, who had an almost 40-year career and was the chief in charge of Special Operations Command when he made the supreme sacrifice at the World Trade Center on September 11th. Chief, welcome to the TeamCast. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a genuine honor. I've been a huge fan of yours for many years. And you and I had a chance to talk at the summit out in San Diego and we got into this conversation about just the development of young people. And I know as head of training, that's a big passion of yours, obviously of mine. And we got into conversations about some of the things that often don't show up in the literature, not the not the sort of tactical stuff or the education stuff, but more of what we generally call mentoring or coaching. But, but just as I mentioned, right, in your brother's in the FDNY, your dad's in the FDNY, the FDNY is a family business. So it's not just like there's just some local random dude or dudette that you've got to generate. It's often you're eating together, you're living together, and you're growing these folks. And so as the chief of training, you know, before we get into your background a little bit, just generally when you think about the development of young people to be of service to New York City and the world because you're the FDNY, how do you generally think about that? I think I was very fortunate to be brought up in a Downey household. Yeah. Uh, my father being a Marine. So I grew up in a military type setting. And I think that carried over significantly into the fire service and into athletics for us. You know, so we had that mentality. You know, we had the, the old school parents. Yeah. You did this, you did that, you did it right, you're respectful. So I, I think when I look at training in the fire service now for my people and the young ones coming on, and obviously out at your summit in San Diego we discussed Generation Z and the younger ones coming on. So, I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but knowing, knowing what I learned out there and having an education background, I've evolved and accepted, okay, this is what we have now, but we still have to apply it in the correct way because we have to prepare, right, for those, those moments. Yep. They're going to be stressed, right? And we get back to what is a firefighter? In my view, it's a tactical athlete. Okay. You know, it's a big buzzword with the first responders, but I truly believe that, you know, you need the mental part, you need the physical part, you need the tactical part. So that's when I look at training and what I do for the probies, which are for people that don't know, our probies are recruits brand new into the academy. But then we do everyday training, tactical, rope training, show for school training. So we encompass all aspects of training at the fire academy. 
Nice. And we're going to take a deep dive on that. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about how you got here. So you mentioned like your dad's Ray Downey's former Marine, famous in the FDNY. You're in high school. And as I was doing research on you, what I found out was that you went to Stony Brook University and you served on their first varsity football team and set 30 school records <laughs> and then were, no kidding, signed as a free agent in 1998 1988 with the Philadelphia Eagles. Walk, walk us through that. <laughs> All right. So like, like I said, you know, I, I come from this family. Obviously, my mother and father are athletic. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I remember taking an anatomy class. This is this is the truth, Doc. I, when I was getting my master's after I was cut by the Eagles, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I took anatomy class. I'll never forget the line. It, it was great because I, I still use it to this day when I used to coach at all different levels. If you want to be an Olympic athlete, you, you have to pick your parents very carefully. Right? Isn't that a great line? So I, I was fortunate to be in that family. You know, I had an older brother and sister. I had a younger brother and sister. I was the middle child. Okay. So was I, by the way. Uh, well, yeah, I think we hit this a little more out east, out west. Right. I, well, I'm, I'm middle of five. I think you're middle of five. Is that right? Yes. Yes, yeah. correct. So that, not knowing at the time, but, you know, we talk about mentor and coaching. I had an older brother, sister, and then I had a younger brother. So I, I was kind of in a good spot, no matter what they say about middle child syndrome, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was in a good spot. And I think the athletic part that carried over with my father and mother's discipline and, and work ethic, we were all athletic. And I personally, I think, and my wife's a psychologist, by the way, she's a school psychologist, school counselor, dual certified. She's a holistic nutritionist. She tells me this day, she says, if you were in school right now, you would be medicated. Yeah. She, yeah. Because of the hyperactivity, like I'm speaking right now, the ADD at times. Right. But it's a good problem. It's a good, and she, she reinforces it's a good problem to have. So I think that carried over into athletics, which, as I said, having those parents and working hard, I was able to excel in multiple sports and play at a small Division three school and uh, do a lot of good things in football and have those opportunities. But you were mentioning as we were talking that it almost didn't happen. You've gotten injured. Yes, my senior year in high school, horsing around in the, the hallway, second floor, and it was a glass wall, and I was... Went through the glass wall, fell two stories, shredded my hand, nerves in my hand. Yeah. Luckily survived, you know, the fall. Yeah. I land on my head. And uh, at that point, you know, I, I like I said, I was a uh, football player, wrestler, and, and lacrosse player, as well as playing hockey outside of school. So I was pretty active. And um, I think that, that setback definitely helped me to, you know, life is about overcoming obstacles, yeah. right? Yep. Succession is about failing and succeeding. So I think this was all part of my process in life. Yep. And you hear that a lot from people is those early catastrophic failures turn them into extraordinary people because they don't take anything for granted. It's like everything has to be worked for and bad things can happen. Yeah. Yeah. My surgeon, I remember being 18 years old and saying, you'll never play football again. You know, maybe you'll play some of those other sports. And, you know, so that was like, wow. You know, but once again, you go through those hard times and it's how you persevere, right? Yeah. And genetics come into play again. You know, what's my genetic makeup? What's from my parents? So that helped out. 
So you get cut from the Eagles. Was the obvious choice the FDNY or was it not? Like, did you not want to do that? Or was that something you always thought about? I did not always think about it. I think as I got older, I remember being in high school and I have an older brother. So he was a division one wrestler at Hofstra University. You know, he was a great wrestler, my older brother. He was on the fire department. I was in high school and my father had come home and said, just, you know, he always just take the test, you know. So we, we took the, the police test. We took the trooper test, took the fire test. And his famous words was just take it as a backup because he was he was all for the education. Single parent, youngest of five. He had no opportunity to go to college. He went straight to Marine Corps because there was no other choices. So he never went to college. He didn't have the opportunity. And later in life, you know, he writes books, you know, does videos, is world renowned. So I think him wanting us to go to college, you know, and I, I tell a story all the time about the Marine recruiter at high school. And I came home with the free T-shirt, you know, and yeah. I had my hair shaved for wrestling season. And I told him, I said, you know, I thought and my father was tough on the exterior. You know, we didn't have these conversations until I actually was in the fire department. Yeah. But I thought he'd be proud. Yeah, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. And he just looked at me, shook his head. He goes, no, you're not. I did that. I want you to go to college. And I was just like, wow, I thought I was going to connect with him. Yeah. But he saw the bigger picture that he wanted, which once again, I was fortunate. I, I say that all the time. I had great parents. My, you know, my mom's still alive. Just very fortunate. That's awesome. So one of the things I like to start with, just because we're going to, this conversation is going to go a couple of different places is. You've now been in the FDNY over three decades, and you've watched it go from a firefighting organization to an all-hazards organization. You've seen everything there is to see in the history books, and you had a front-row seat. And I imagine there's some stuff that's exactly the same as it was when you showed up day one, and there's a bunch of stuff that's totally different. And when you look back, what are the kinds of things that you're really grateful are still there? And what are the kinds of things that you're sort of like, man, that's really different now? Yeah, I think it's important that we evolve, as I said earlier, change, right? And I know the fire service nationally is, is getting very hit for diversity. Obviously, white, male, Caucasians make a large percentage of every fire department. You know, we have this issue of diversifying. And I think, I think the thing is, you know, we need traditions, but we do need change. And it, it's almost like that fine line. What are we talking about? We got to keep tradition, but we understand we need to diversify. So what I've seen, I mean, personally, changes, you know, protective equipment. Yeah, I came on before bunker gear. You know, you had you had boot, you, you bought your boots, you bought the, the big turnout coat. You know, there was no hoods. You know, the gloves were not fire protective, and you know, you went to fires that way until you're, the bomb. You're wearing jeans, right? You're wearing Levi's. We had jeans. Yeah. yeah. We didn't have a quartermaster system. We have a quartermaster system now, like the military. When I came on, you you know, they gave you a thousand dollar check and you went and bought all your stuff and, and you really didn't buy it again because you didn't, you know, firefighters are cheap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You That's know, why those old mangled helmets went on forever. Oh, old mangled. I still have my coat, you know, boots. You, your boots would be leaking and you spend 10 bucks to get it patched up with rubber. That is really a transformation in our equipment now, protective equipment. Technology is another huge advancement. You know, I'm a lieutenant during 9-11. We still had typewriters. Okay. We did not have computers in the fire service, in the FDNY, I should say. You know, from a command perspective, 
the real salty chiefs would walk up in front of building with the response ticket. You know, if you were a newer chief, maybe you had a clipboard and a pad. Now we have iPads, you yeah. know, so technology. So when you think about it, I think the safety culture, I think those are my three biggest changes. And I, I talk about the safety culture because the mindset was like almost the, the analogy that you gave out in San Diego with, with some of those, um, I don't want to say in particular, but you suck, suck less. Remember yeah. those? Yeah. Our mentality was, you know, the joke I, I still remember as a firefighter was, you know, all right, we'll get a good job tonight and we're going either to the burn center or the Bennett. And the Bennett was the highest medal that you can receive okay. each year. So yeah. it, was, it was called the Gordon Bennett. This past year, they named it the Chief Gansey. But the Bennett is the highest medal you can win yearly. And we used to walk in as firefighters. All right, we're going to the burn center or the Bennett tonight. You know, like that was the mentality. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I learned about you guys is I followed Chief Pfeiffer for three days when he was City Watch. And so I I went into one of the fires. It was on the 27th floor of an insurance building. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, and I was always just behind watching other people, but one of the things that fascinated me is that one of the chiefs had positioned himself at the downstairs stairway. And what he was doing is he was saying hello to everyone that came down. And I asked him, why do you do that? He says, inhalation. If they can't say hello without coughing, right, they're fine. But what they'll try to do is they'll try to dodge by nodding. And I make them say hello. And if they say hello and cough, I got to take them to the hospital. But they don't want to do that. And I always thought that was really interesting. That's just a great chief officer right there. That truly is, right? Yeah. Because it's, you know, whether it's whatever mission critical team you are. Yeah. You take care of your own, right? Right. You protect the young. They're my... I'll smack them when I have to, but I'm protecting them and you're not going to smack them, right? right? Yeah. That mentality. So I want to come back and I was going to talk about this later, but since you brought it up, we're going to talk about neurodiversity for a second. And I'm using that term and I want to explain to the audience very particularly because of what we're going to talk. There is social diversity and that has to do with social justice and who gets to earn an income and all that stuff. That's not actually what we're going to talk about. What we're going to talk about is on many teams right now that are solving really complex problems, you need as many tools in the toolkit that you can get, as many different ideas that you can get. However, there are also teams, and this is my going to be my question to you, who just need to be sled dogs. They need to be a bunch of people that, that know what to do and can do each other's jobs and sort of think the same way because they got to move fast and get things done. And so when you were talking about both diversity and tradition and change, there's always this tension between, man, we really want to be inclusive of other ways of, of thinking. At the same time, we're not joining you, you're joining us. Right. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that wherever you come from, there's going to be time for new ideas, but there's going to be time for there's no new ideas. Just this is the way you're going to do business. Mm -hmm. And so as a chief in 2023 in charge of training, how do you think about that balance? Because I think both are important to your point, but both are real. I Yeah. You know, if I take it from the recruit perspective rather than say, you know, because next week I have the first rank which we call lieutenants, yep. that class is starting, as well as battalion chiefs are starting next week as well. So I deal with, you know, the recruits, the lieutenants class, the captain's course, the BC command course, they're all part of my units. So when I look at what you're talking about, like neurodiversity, and I, I think of, right, we have all different players and all different abilities, you know, cognitive, right? Yep. Yeah. So now we take that neurodiversity and 
depending on where we're at. So I'll just, I'll stay, keep it simple with the recruits. Yeah. You know, they don't rep sex experience. You need repetitions. You need experience. No matter what you do, you need reps, you need experience. But at times you need to be proactive. And how do you empower a young person to be proactive? That's all they're thinking about. I don't want to make a mistake. Right. Right. So I don't want to label. You know, I don't want a nickname. Right. So that training, and I would go back to basic training and instruct the, the cadre. How are you empowering them? What type of leadership? Because leadership skills doesn't mean that, you know, like me, a chief or the incident commander, leadership skills starts with everything about, you know, whether it's um, self-awareness, self-regulation, you know, your empathy, your motivation, you know, your basic social skills. Right. So so how do you impart and place that seed early on? Right. And, and with recruits, I think getting back to your neurodiversity is, yeah, we teach them the basics. Right. And, you know, that sled dog. You know, and I'm not going to typecast truck operations or engine operations, but it's a lot easier for a new recruit to be on the hand line and just hauling in the hand line, not being the first nozzle firefighter, but maybe the second or third, the backup or the control. Or maybe it's that, you know, that rookie proby inside can firefighter where he's just hanging on the coattails of that great fire officer that has a ton of experience. And that's the sled dog in that version. But at times they're going to have to make calls. It gets lights out and he loses grip of that officer. He's going to have to make a search of a couple of rooms that way. And now we have to make sure, right, that you re- react, right? We don't want them to fail. Just And just for our- I don't know if that helps your, you know, answer that question. No, it's, I think it's, it's not so much an answer is because I don't think there is one. I think it's more of, it's really helpful to get a sense of how you think about that. And that's, that was really helpful to me. And just to, for our audience that I know that many people do, they're listening to elite things, but maybe you're not familiar with, with the mechanics of fighting fires. And just to give mm-hmm. you an example, and this is a funny example, <laughs> I visited Randall's Island, the rock many times, and you guys put me in the burn house and you get me all kitted up and everything. And I'm, what I'm expecting knowing that thing is I'm going to walk in there. It's going to be hot, but I'm going to be standing there and the lights are going to be on me and there's going to be flames <laughs> in the background and there's going to be music playing and it's going to be awesome. Instead, I'm on my knees. And if I put my hand on my mask, I can't see my hand. It's dark in a way that I just cannot experience. And if I lift my head up two inches, my ears catch fire. So when you say lights out, it's it's hard to explain to anyone who's not been in it. But you're talking about lights out as in you cannot see, period. Right. And, and so I guess with that said, what I want to back up and say is, you know, if there I am living in the five boroughs, right? I was once told that New York City fights more fires in a year than the next three biggest cities in the world. Like you're just one of the busiest departments in the world, if not the busiest, and depending on the year and what's happening. Right. But if I'm living in one of the five boroughs, right, Queens or Manhattan or whatever, and I see a fire and I call 911, just walk me through the mechanics. What happens next? So if you call 911, it'll go straight to FD dispatch, right? FD dispatch will say, hey, doc, what's the problem? I live in this 143 West 157th Street. I'm in a five-story tenement and I got fire on the third floor. So that ticket, as I say ticket, that response will be sent out to those units. Those units will receive a ticket response. And basically for what you called in, they will send three engine companies, okay, two ladder companies, and a battalion chief. And, and, and when you say a company, a, a ladder company is what? How many people are in that? So 
a ladder company will have one officer, a lieutenant or captain working and five firefighters on a ladder, which is, we say, you know, some people call them cherry pickers, but we call them towel ladders or aerial ladder, which is a long ladder or a tiller rig. And if I say Seinfeld and, and, you know, Kramer driving the the back of the tiller, everyone knows what I'm talking about. So we have three different type of ladder apparatus and then an engine, the engine has a lieutenant or captain and then either four or five firefighters, depending on, depending on staffing levels. So that engine has all that hose. So that's how we distinguish between the two companies, an engine and a ladder. Yeah. So you've got these officers that are in charge of these five people, actually five firefighters, I should say. Yes. It is the identity. If I'm one of those firefighters, do I think of myself like when somebody's at a bar, like, what do you do? Do I re- say I'm on ladder X or do I say I'm in house X or do I just say I'm in the FDNY? I personally, when someone say, what do you do? I say, yeah. I'm a New York City firefighter. Okay. That's me, you know, and that's probably watching my father and some of my mentors and my elders yeah. and the humility. That, I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, I'm a chief. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I just say, I'm a New York City firefighter. And the next question usually is, oh, where do you work? You know, so that, that next question comes into that company pride and yeah, it's okay. usually followed by, well, I work in one of the the busiest firehouse yeah. in New York City. Yeah, I always say that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, for the last year, I can't say that. But for, for the 32 years prior, I always said, oh, I work in the, the busiest firehouse in New York City. And then I, that goes into the company logo or the company nickname. Yeah. You know, so I, you know, I've worked in the Eye of Bed Stuy and I worked in Hillside Hurricanes. Yeah. The best of both worlds when I was in the Bronx. So we had South Bronx and we had Harlem. So our logo was the best of both worlds. So I worked in a lot of different places you know that's the way i identify i really truly identify as a new york city firefighter chief i gotta tell you that every fdny firefighter of which i now know hundreds every single one of them has told me they work on the busiest company <laughs> so at some point i'm gonna need to actually find out which, which one of them's telling the truth you, you know there is a lot of yeah there's definitely a lot of trash talking when that comes to who's the busiest <laughs> well so, bring out the statistics yeah so Michelle Fitzsimmons has been a longtime friend of mine. And we once talked about when she went into a burning building and I said, how do you tell time? And because one of the problems that people have, and we've talked about this in our research, is this notion technically called temporal expansion, which is once you enter into combat or firefighting or surgery, time and space change. And one of the things she taught me, she says, well, one of the things I learned to do was I knew I wasn't going to be able to tell time well, but I knew that when the water reached a certain part of my boot, I had so much time left in my tank. Great point. And and I just, I wanted to sort of talk to you about that kind of a thing, what we call tacit knowledge, this knowledge that's not, you're not going to be able to write it down because it's not true every time, but these sort of principles you learn about how to manage these chaotic situations. And are there opportunities in the fire academy to teach those kinds of things? Or is that really taught on the job? I think we try to teach it. And obviously sharing those stories and those experiences is always helpful. And my father wrote a great, I'll send it to you. My father wrote a great article back in 99 about being a chief officer and you know, the art of firefighting versus the science of firefighting and the many variables that are thrown out during a typical operation. And as Michelle stated, like, how do you try to keep that balance of where I am right now, what's transpiring, do the the chaos that's going on around me, right? Almost 
stepping out of that and placing yourself in a calmer, quieter atmosphere. It's difficult. And we do do it in training before you spoke about the mask. So I think a, a real good analogy to that is we, when the recruits come in, when the new probies come in, one of the first evolutions we call smoke appreciation. So everyone says, well, you're not supposed to let the probies breathe in smoke, you know, with all these, with OSHA and all this other stuff. But the smoke appreciation is really what you're talking about. So we walk them through, okay, this is a one-room fire. And they have their masks on. Yeah. And they feel the heat. Okay, stand down, stand up. This is early on in the training academy for, for the new probies. Okay, now we're going to walk away from this, get in the light of, okay, take your mask off. This is what the smoke and it's, it's very light smoke condition, but it, we call it smoke appreciation because we don't even want to call it any type of training evolution. Yeah. We want to get them accustomed to, you know, the visibility limitations and then the uncomfortableness of being near heat and then taking off and just being exposed to a little smoke to, God forbid, the mask malfunction. So we do step up the processes. And, you know, I think that's the bottom level as we gain more experiences and evolutions as they go through the academy. And then obviously that's translated into the field. John Regan once taught me this amazing sort of thing about how hot is hot. And we got this conversation, right? And, and because I thought of it as a pretty straightforward question, like how hot is hot? And he actually took some time and explained to me that it's actually learned. And he told me this story of him going down to one of his first fires and he was going downstairs as the fire was coming up the stairs. Mm -hmm. And he says, he first three steps down, he's like, I'm on fire. I got to get out of here. And he turns around to get out. And there's a chief like, you're not on fire. I'll tell you when you're on fire, go back down. And it took him three or four times before he realized, oh, this is how hot hot is. And, right. and I've interviewed a lot of firefighters since, and they said, yeah, it takes you actually a long time to actually understand what is hot. Is that is that a fair statement? Oh, definitely. John and I came on together. So okay. you know, we're, we're talking about pre-bunker gear where you're not fully encapsulated yeah. in the modern to legacy type fires that are not really petro-based, right? So the fires, the fires today are hotter Okay. and more intense and the smoke is thicker due to what a lot of materials are made of with, with petroleum-based materials compared to that old cotton and wood yep. generation. So yeah, I think we learned it, John and I, you're going down that staircase, right? And your groin area was open because your boots only went past, you know, to your mid-thigh and your coat hung over and you had no hood on. So you had a lot exposed still. So when you felt that tingling on your skin or in your legs, you're like, okay, I'm getting closer and closer. And then if it was unbearable, okay, I took a half a step back or yeah. handline operated. Where today, we're fully encapsulated today. And that was like a big transition for a lot of us firefighters that went from pre-bunker gear to that. So to tell the temperature to fire is actually even more difficult today. Yeah. Got it. So there's less margin to know. You're not going to gradually like step into the shallow end of the pool. You're immediately in the deep end of the pool. Yeah, no, it's definitely much different. And that's why like that basic first evolution we do with probies, smoke appreciation. Yeah. It's kind of getting to see, okay, now I take my face piece off. I'm out of the fire. I can still feel heat. I got a little smoke. You know, we're not taking it off right over the fire or in blackout conditions, but we're acclimating them to that potential of it eventually going bad. 
Yeah. I first started going to the Fire Academy because of John Regan and getting the program with Wharton School, sort of, which I think is still going on. And yes. one of those particular times, I'm standing next to Chief Galvin. Chief Galvin would basically yell at me for 20 minutes every time we met. He liked me and I adore him, but I would totally get you overeducated, worthless. Great guy. He yelled at us all. Great guy. Yeah. yeah, but I adore him. Like he's amazing and he's a legend, right? Yes. We're sitting there and he's saying, why do you guys want to do this? And at that time, we were standing at a position, I won't get on the details, we're in a position where we could see maybe five different groups of MBAs with FDNY firefighters. And to give you a sense for the audience, there were two FDNY firefighters and about six MBA students, and they were going through different training evolutions just to give them a sense of what it's like to be of service to the to the city of New York, the city of Philadelphia, these folks that will go on to run companies, we wanted them to understand like what you do is only possible because these guys do their job and you should get a sense of what that is. That was right. the purpose behind it. Mm -hmm. So one day you have this one particular evolution called a tunnel evolution and you put on a mask and you put on bunker gear and you put on the air compressed sort of tank and all that and you crawl through this tunnel. So you've got claustrophobia, you've got some other things. And this one MBA, won't tell you man or woman, comes out and is overwhelmed and is in some tears. And the person who's handling the tunnel is one of these 200-year-old firefighters who fought in the Civil War, right? And he doesn't do tears. He doesn't, that's not, we don't cry in the FDNY. Like, I don't know what's happening right now. So he's looking at this kid and he just says it like this, a little help. I can hear it from across the, the thing, a little help. And as soon as he says that, one person at every one of those teams that are working over the NBA, every single one of those pairs turn to look at each other tap and one from each team starts walking directly at the same time without coordination starts walking to that guy and i turn to chief galvin i go that's why what you just saw right there that actually doesn't happen in the rest of the world if somebody wow. if you're an ibm you say a little help they'll just make fun of you there's a lot of teams where a little help like they'll throw just you know they'll throw stuff on you make uh, they'll help you drown right so, right right one of the unique aspects of the FDNY I've always found that you guys don't actually know about yourselves is that. And I don't know where it comes from. I don't know because it comes from you guys eat together all the time. But do you think that sense starts at probie school? Do you think this idea of looking for work, always finding a way to support each other? Do you think that that starts there? I do. I definitely do. I think the the mentality of our instructors, our probie school instructors. So we have you know, academic and evolution instructors. We have fitness instructors, which are different. And now third cadre is drill instructors. Okay. So all three of those different type instructors work together, but it is about, because some of these kids, people thought I had experience. I remember go, oh, your father's on a job, your brother's on a job. You've probably been on the fire truck a million times. I was like, I've never been on a fire truck because my father didn't take us to work. You know, it was that generation. I didn't go to work. So I was taught early on the basics. So what I see from us now, we continue to do those simple basic needs that you're going to need in the fire. And you mentioned the, the kitchen table, right? There's downtime, right? We have downtime, but it can happen at any time without profession. Yeah. Boom. Game's on, right? Time to perform. So I think starting out early in probing school and I continue to use the seed analogy, but we're just planting seeds, right? And cultivating that as we go. As he said, a little help. We want that to grow and, and sprout up. So I think just might be helpful if we take a minute and talk about 
the FDLI Fire Academy, because when okay. I was there, your biggest audience or clientele, what do you want to call it, bulk of work is Proby School, taking people off the streets, turning them into firefighter. But you also do many other things there. And so what are the kinds of things that go on at Randall's Island? Yeah, to start with our biggest program, right? Our biggest unit is Proby School. On Friday, we graduated 288 Probies. So they just graduated. They started on Monday. Our tactical training unit. So we train in the a.m., in the afternoon, in the p.m., Monday through Friday, and then Saturday mornings, tactical training, it's called. So our field units, up to 20 a day, come to the academy, and we have set drills because we don't want, we don't want them driving from Brooklyn or Staten Island you know, or downtown Manhattan and doing a drill that they can do in the firehouse. Yeah. So we have unique drills when they come to the fire. So that's our tactical training. We train anyone that drives an engine or a truck has to go to chauffeur training school, you know, and then we have our annual education day, which right now we're, we're implementing a new life-saving rule. So we train four to seven units a day in that, you know, then we can start talking about, you know, hazmat ops takes place, special ops takes place at the Academy Marine ops, you know, so we have new units like technology and development, our video production unit, our remote tactical training unit, which started a unit where they go out and do live training for to show units in the field. It's actually live. It's to hit that generation Z. All right. We're implementing technology now. So those are probably 10 of the 32 units that we, we have going on each day. Yeah. So busy place. So, you know, I'm sitting in New York. I got a job as whatever. And all of a sudden I say to myself, man, I I think what I really want to do is become a firefighter. What is that process? Just walk me through from like, I'm a mechanic and I decide one day I'm going to become a firefighter. How does that happen? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So basically DCAS, DCAS, Department of Citywide Administrative Services, you have to take a written test. It's offered every four years. So I'll break it down very quick without going. You take that written test and you put on a list. That list, the next step would be called a CPAT, Candidate Physical Ability Test, a physical. So it's basically an eight-station fire simulated. You know, you drag hose, you drag a body, you force a door, you throw up ladders. And that has to be be done in, uh, I think right now it's 10 minutes and 20 seconds. So you pass that. So now you pass the written, you pass the physical. Now you go through the medical and psychological processing. That process, as I stated, from when you take the written to when you get called, I mean, if you score very high in everything, it could be within a year. If you score at the end of the list, you'll never get called. I think over the years, we usually have anywhere from 35 to 50,000 people on the list. And usually, I think only once we've gotten past 5,000. You know, right now we're at 4,600. And we're on the fourth year. It's supposed to expire. It was actually supposed to expire today is the second. It was supposed to expire yesterday. But due to the COVID and the pandemic, we extended it two years. So we're going to reach over 4,600, obviously. So that's a quick, you know, written, physical, medical, psychological, depending how well you do on the written. You know, physical is just a pass, but that written is a lot. Obviously, we... Military, if you're military, ex-military, you get extra points, which is great. Yeah. We love our military. And then they um they get accepted and then they come to you. And how long are they in probie school? Presently, the curriculum is 18 weeks. Okay. 
from there, do they go re- directly to a firehouse? Yes. So Friday they graduated. Monday morning they started, and they go all five boroughs. Okay. And how long are they considered a pro before? Eighteen months now. It was when John and I came on. It was twelve months. It's eighteen months now. Okay, got it. And is there a ceremony at the end of that eighteen months, or they? Yes. Just- yeah, the graduation is—it's a great day. It truly is. It's only my second one because, like I said, I did thirty-two years in the field. Yeah. My last year, I've been offline at the academy, so it's my second graduating class. It's a great day. I, it makes me jealous. I'm telling you, Preston. It's—it's it's like I look at them. I look at the families. Like, oh my god, I—I I, I would turn back the clock. I would love to be a probie again. That's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, such a great day, Friday. So let's talk now, get into sort of the meat of the conversation. And so okay. people in the audience, they have kind of a concept of what you do and and what the firefighters are going to do when they graduate. So you've got, let's say, the average age of a probie is all over the map. But let's talk about the younger folks, folk, the, the high school, college age, a little bit younger. And they don't know what they don't know. And they're learning the tactics, they're they're going and they're getting the academics and they're getting physically fit. But there's also those questions of, ooh, I blew it, I made a mistake, I said the wrong thing, or I, I did the right thing, or I don't have confidence, right? And, sure. you know, as you, you and I have talked, you've been doing this for a while. And even when you're a firefighter, you're still developing people all the time. All the time. All the time. And so when you think about this, when you think about the role of, let's call it the elder, right? The person who's like, uh, the kid had a rough day, let's get our arm wrapped around and make sure he's, he's all right. Or... No, that was really stupid. Let's bounce some foreheads off tables. Let's figure this out. How do you think about that in terms of your role, just in general, in the work that you do? I, I think when we speak of elders and in the fire service, say the FDNY, we talk about that senior firefighter or that great fire officer or the salty chief, right? Those are our elders, you know, and I'm giving you different, yeah. different ranks just to kind of relate it to the different stages that we're at. So we talked about experience in any profession, you know, you need the experiences. But when you make those mistakes, how is that corrected? Is it a debrief, a hot wash, an after action review, all these these terms, critiques. For a while we used the word term critiques. We created something when I was a battalion chief in Jamaica, Queens headquarters that said, hey, we, we want some hot washes right after, not back at the firehouse, right in the street. And it was something that we didn't do well in the FDNY at the time. We truly didn't, you know, it was usually you talked at the back, got on the rig, you went back and you talked about it in your own firehouse as I get back. So that we have 143 trucks, 197 engines. I'm going to say about 250 or 54 stations where we're at. And you went back. So it was really small. When we implemented this, God, and I was over there 2005 or so. It, it caught on really quick, but it began with, and this is stuff that we learned as battalion chiefs and incident commanders. We can't start it and just point at the engine or say, what'd you do? What'd you do? And start going around the circle. And as we really cultivated and got better at it, we learned that we would start now. And this was a collaborative effort between the four of us, the four battalion chiefs working. Well, for me, it was great because it was like, you would first own up to your own mistakes. I would always start after really starting to do it well. I would always, hey guys, you know, this this operation went well. But before we start this, I'm just going to tell you what I saw when I walked up. 
And I go through a couple of things and I, and I always finished with, and I really wish I would have done that. And then said that maybe if I transmitted that and the extra, extra, I said, but engine officer, give me your perspective on it. And that's how we started doing them. Yeah. But if we didn't own up to something that we could do better next time, or we made a mistake with in the beginning, we weren't doing that. And we learned really, and that's part of like, you know, we talked about leadership and emotional intelligence yeah. and connecting as a leader. Does every battalion do it in New York city? I hope so. I don't know. I know we did it really well, but it was a growing process. You know, one of the things I've always been curious about is that my experience with the FDNY has always been, if, if someone asked me, hey, pick a word to characterize just all the FDNY folks, the one that would genuinely come to mind is humility. And it's what you just talked about, right? It's just starting with, hey, I'm not the best in the world at this. I'm not the smartest in the room. Here's how I did it. Here, let's move forward. And that's always been my experience. But every once in a while, very rarely, I'll meet an FDNY guy who's not humble. And I watch the other FDNY guys get very uncomfortable. And I wonder, as a chief, as a leader, as you lead people who are, in this case, countercultural, let's call it, somebody who's, maybe they have a position of authority, but you're over them, and they're they're behaving in a way that's not consistent with what you think, really, the values of the organization. How do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, it was great because my father's best line to me, when I was a probie, I came back from a fire. I was still living at home, and I, I was telling him about what transpired and how I wish I would have done that. And I could have done this, you know, and he's sitting there like a good elder taking it all in. And, and he talked a little tactically and then he ended with this, Doc. he ended with this. And I, it's on pretty much every slide that when I used to teach and do seminars, it's, it's my last slide picture him. And it says humility. I'll forward it to you. And it says, I learned something new at every operation. And if you don't, you need to retire. Nice. So I, that's always on my mind. Yeah, it's, it's from when I my first mistake as, as a probie in the field and what he told me. So when I get that that tough officer or that individual that thinks they know everything, I say something in that format, or I think my resume is enough to kind of yeah. you know I, I was fortunate to work in some really good places. Yeah, and to be in the field pretty much my whole career till the last year. But it is, and we get them. Everyone has those. Everyone does. That's and that's yes. not unique. And it's and I will say again, there's very few of them with you guys. But because you have such a strong culture, I'm always just fascinating because it's one of those things where I watch you all and you see that, you hear that, and you're all uh, usually there's some cat calls from the back of the room, right, right away. <laughs> but it's it's always interesting to me. No, I think it's good because. We don't need cultural change, right? We have traditions, but we need cultural developments to evolve. And yeah. I've seen it in 33 years. We need to evolve, but we don't need to lose the traditions. It, it, you know, it's like still continue to do the right thing as we move, right? Continue that right thing. Yeah. I think every organization I work with, whether it's mission control at NASA or the cages in special operations or team rooms, everyone has their own unique aspect of their culture. And one of the things that's always fascinating to me is in the FDNY, everywhere you go, including MetroTech, you eat together. There's a kitchen and every everywhere there's a kitchen. And, and it's just understood that someone's going to take turns cooking, that no one's doing it for you. You're going to take turns getting groceries. You're going to make something. People are going to like it or not like it, but you're all going to eat together. Yeah. How much of a role do you think that plays in your culture? Just that ritual. 
Oh, it's, it's, it's tremendously important. So how many kitchens do you, do you think I have at the rock? God, I don't know. No, it was just a, you know, you know, the build, there's not a whole lot of buildings there. I think it's, I, I only know of one. We have almost a dozen different people making lunch every day at the rock. Wow. 12 different kitchens. So it's good because you keep it. So you think food, my mother's side, you know, Italian immigrants, yeah, food, family. Yeah. And you talk about the kitchen table. Yeah. Oh God, the kitchen table. Like I have the, I still have the kitchen table now because where I'm at, but that's where you hear the story, right? Yeah. I, some of the podcasts, the story times. Yeah. Right? So you hear stories at the kitchen table, which is really important. And you hear, you know, it's the jokes, right? Because if you don't break someone's chops, they're not accepted, right? That's the big fire department. Hey, if I don't break your chops, then we don't like you, you know? Yeah. You know, so the ribbing, you know, the mentoring, the coaching, the elders, telling stories. The kitchen table is extremely important in the fire service, extremely yeah. important. You know, so that whole food family, bonding, sharing, because you are a, a family. You know, we say teamwork. We're, we're a family. And that teamwork extends out. And obviously, when you, you go into chaos, you have to be a team. So it's it's all part of the, an important process. It's interesting. You know, I, I grew up, I'm a New England kid, right? New England, you don't talk about religion, politics, or emotions, right? Like, that's New England. <laughs> now, none of that gets discussed. And the I Irish moved, say that, too. Yeah. And I moved to New Jersey, and I have all these Italian friends, and I go to their house for dinner. And it's like a brawl. And I'm like, are your parents in trouble? And I, and my friend goes, what do you mean? I was like, there's so much yelling. And he looks around. He's like, no, this is this is what this is. Yeah. This is how it always is. And it's it took a long time to realize that that's where everything gets sorted out. Everyone's together. The good, the bad, the ugly, it all gets sorted out right there. That is a perfect analogy of what takes place. That really is. That, that big Italian family in the firehouse kitchen. That is That's a great analogy. But I also love the point that you made, which is it's also after dinner's over, maybe a new kid's having a little bit of a trouble and an elder sees it and goes, let me tell you this one time. And that's when the storytelling as a point of education, as a point of development and growth is really important. It's like, um, yeah. It's it's tremendous. So you just created a thought that I that I just forgot for the last 30 plus years. So when I was a probie in my firehouse, Harry Rogers was the battalion chief. So it was an engine company with a battalion chief, no laddering. And the battalion chief, he came on in like 1957 at the time. So he had seen the city before it got pretty rough in the 60s and 70s. And now here I am. He has 30 something years. Marine, military type haircut, very stern, no joke around, no talking to you. Only after dinner. After the probies cleaning up, you know, who goes in the back room, who goes upstairs, the officer goes, he always stood in there. And when I was finished, he always talked to me only after dinner. Yeah. And he would impart his wisdom. And I was fortunate. I had my brother, my father, but he was an, an elder. Yeah. A salty chief telling me about, the, I mean, it was like, you know, I look back now and reflect back. God, that's something that should be in the archives for, for, for probies. So, you know, I am the way I am because of people like him, my father and him that just planted those seeds. So I, that's why being chief of the fire academy right now, I'm just hoping that we, our instructors, are planting seeds to cultivate. Yeah. 
So I'm going to pivot a little bit to talk about the events of September 11th. And the way I'm going to do it for the audience, because this is a tricky conversation to have. It's certainly emotional for me. And so I try to do it in a way that's in line with the conversation that we're having, right, in terms of development. And I've been thinking about how to introduce it. I'm going to do it as follows. Where Chief Downey works at the Fire Academy there is a number of buildings. It looks, I always tell people, it looks like a New England college campus that's been set on fire every day for the last 20 years. So <laughs> it always looks like red brick buildings that are all on fire. <laughs> Smoke speed. <laughs> yeah, except for the main building. And inside the main building are all the things you'd expect. There are plaques on the walls, there are everything else. There is also a long hallway sort of accounting the history of the FDNY. And if you start at one, right, FDNY is a 150-year-old organization. And if you start on one end, you go back to the old fire horse-drawn carriages in the 17-1800s and the names of the fallen. And you'll go by and there'll be, you know, ones and twos, and there'll be a period where there's no and a decade that follows and there's everyone's good. Then you'll have a big fire where maybe you lose 10 guys and it was a bad day. And then you turn a corner and you come to a wall where there's three 343 pictures on one wall. And you realize if you walk that hallway in the history of the FDNY that more people were lost on that day than in the previous 150 years. But what people also don't understand, as much as overwhelming as that is, is that many of the people that were lost that day were leaders, were were chiefs and captains and folks that were like your father legends in the organization. And so what happened in the days that followed was that folks that normally would be mentored with the stories that we're talking about over a period of 10 years before your next promotion, now suddenly you're getting promoted once or twice, maybe three times in a period of a couple of years because you had to fill those spots. And the organization was going from a firefighting organization to an all-hazard organization. To You had to do everything. Yes. And so you're, you're dealing with rapid change like organizational change, which is hard enough with an old organization, but you're also promoting people in an organization that's used to developing people organically who are suddenly shoved in these positions. And you're mourning the loss of friends and family and others. And you're you're dealing with a new world. And I want to say it and introduce it that way. And I just want to open it up to you to talk about whatever you want to talk about. But I think about the FDNY. I think about the development of folks. I think about the choices of folks like John Galvin or Chief Galvin, excuse me, Tom Galvin, who were yeah. who were given the opportunity to do a lot of things and said, I need to go to the to to your position, be the chief of the fire academy, because we've got to develop this next generation. And it was I mean, he's an unsung American hero. Many of you are for doing that work, like the uncelebrated, yeah, I could be out on Fox News or I could be behind the scenes making sure that the next generation of guys and men and women are there when we need them. And so that's not really a question, Chief. (laughs) It's more of, I'm really aware of the gravitas of this subject. And I kind of want to introduce it that way in the context of developing others. Yeah. You know, it's hard to talk about 9-11 when I relate it to myself because, and and this is once again, one of my, Vinnie Dunn, right? Vinnie Dunn is a retired deputy chief that, you know, he was a young lieutenant at the 23rd Street collapse in 1966. And, you know, the chief turned around and pointed at two lieutenants. You go there, you go there. And that one lieutenant was killed. It was the biggest loss of life in 1966. 12, five, you know, from firefighter to deputy chief. We lost every rank that day. And his his statement, which I live by, that's why 
is if we don't know how firefighters were seriously injured or killed, we're not doing service to ourselves and for the future generation. So 9-11, horrible day. But as you say, like guys like Tom Galvin and that trauma, all that trauma we experienced, uh, you know, and what with PTSD now, but a lot of good came out of it, right? Myself, I was a lieutenant during 9-11. I was promoted out of special ops as a firefighter and I was a covering lieutenant. At that time, I had two years in rank. I didn't even think about going to special ops because I didn't feel like I had the experience yet. I had 11 years on a job or so. I didn't have, I, I was, that's what I told myself. When 9-11 happened, they were looking, you know, guys like me, they were like, oh my God, we were like thrust into these positions because of, as you stated, we lost so much talent, so much seniority. So when I think of 9-11, I, I think of the good that came out of that horrible day and how many people stepped up to, you know, because I, I keep going back. We, we do have to honor and memorialize and keep their legacies going. Guys like Tommy Galvin and those who stepped up and went to training. And then for firefighting, right? We acquired EMS in the mid-90s and now we're all hazards, right? And then... You know, a lot of programs were started, you know, and that was from the federal government and different grants and different units started to grow bigger and bigger. So if I reflect back on 9-11, you want me to reflect on 9-11? Yeah, please, please. You know, what I saw that day getting down there right after the second building came down, and I would have to really say just the resilience and perseverance. You know, I, you know, some of us didn't leave there. To this day, I know, I think I went home once in three weeks, you know, my brother and I, we just slept wherever we slept or rested, you know, in a stairwell in a vacant building, whatever it was. But that was just my brother and I looking for, you know, he lost his whole company. Three of my previous companies were all lost, three of his previous companies. And then we talk about our friends and obviously my father. So, and I'm just talking about my brother and I. There was thousands of us in that situation, yep. that resilience, that perseverance, that like you're being pushed. You know, it goes back to sports, right? And I, I go back to my family now. You're a good practice player, right? A good practice, you practice hard, practice hard. You're usually a good game player, but, you know, you do have those exceptions. You know, you put in that that willpower, that determination to do as much as you could. And, and I think that's when I look at sports and I think of 9-11 and what we did, we just we were just trying just to get some of our people back. And then once it went from a rescue to recovery, now it was just like getting some, I don't believe in closure and grieving and all that stuff. We can talk all day about that, but just getting that family where they need to be. Yeah. Right? Because we all process it differently, whether we're going to stick it in a box. I think of Tom Brokaw's book, right? With the World War II vets and how they, they just basically put it aside, but did it ever come out? I don't know. My wife's a psychologist. She thinks I process it in a good way. And I'm giving back now. Everything I do now, I, I always talk about the guys we lost. I do. That day, especially, but even all the other fires that we've lost so many, because it's important that we keep not just the memories, but the legacies, right? Just, you know, what they did that day, how they just knew it was there. You know, they're walking up those staircases and they're running back in there and a building comes down and they're still running in, you know, and it was so many of them. I, I'm speaking from a fire perspective. There were so many civilians, so many police, but for the FDNY, 
I'm proud of those. It's just an amazing that day to me. I don't know if I went off on a tangent, Doc. Um, no, appreciate it. You can ask me any day. I, I, you know, I, I, I think it's important to talk about that day. How many people talk about December 7, 1941? Yeah. yeah. Right? I think, yeah. I, I, we recently had Dr. Sharon Ravage come on and we talked about Victor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning, about. Sure, I his, read it. Yep. His experience after the Holocaust or oh. during, excuse me, during the Holocaust. But more, camp, yeah. yeah. but more importantly, how he made meaning of it, right? And this idea that any, put any event, right, y- you get a vote. You get a vote of whether or not to turn it into wisdom or turn it into sorrow, right? And I think what you're talking about is this idea of regardless of, of how bad things are that define the value in it, to find some good in it that will allow you to keep moving. And just to keep it a little bit separate, I think about your brother a lot. I think about the fact that the day before he goes to work, he's one of eight. And then in the next day, he's one of one, right? And what matters to me about that, in addition to everything else, and that I think that the average human may not understand out there, I think the people listening to this would, but I think a lot of folks, certainly in politics, don't understand is, what it takes for after the the weeks that you, when you finally go home, you finally take a shower, you finally get to sleep and you wake up and you go to put your boots on and you're like, and it all sort of shows up for you. And you're like, can I keep doing this? And you're like, yeah. And you put on your boots and you go to work. And I think without that, the whole thing collapses. Without people like that in America or the world, who are right. to take it, take it in the face and then shake it off, put their boots back on and go to work, the whole thing falls apart. And so I always think about that as just sort of amazing. And there's so many examples of that. In the, so many stories. So yes. many stories, right, of, of people you work with every day who had that extraordinary resilience in yes. the days that followed. You, you hit it on the head, but I, I, I think that glass, you know, we always say is a half full, half empty. What I use from that day on, it's, it's not... It's not half full, right? It's almost full. Yeah. Because if you don't stay positive, you know, and listen, everyone has different mental capacities and how they're going to deal with stress and how they're going to deal with PTSD. But, you know, that positivity, that be able to take something that was terrible, but to still see good out of it and what came of it and keep it positive. Because I think that negative is what really hurts people. And, and, and seeing some of my colleagues over the years and how it affected them, that if we don't keep it positive, yeah. right? Uh, you said the doctors spoke about- a Victor um, Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, with that. the trauma and, yep. and, and the wisdom. Yep. And it is, you know, uh, you still have to stay positive. I think that's a key aspect of it, you know, staying positive. We we talk a lot, especially, you know, with this work that we've been doing on After Action Reviews, and you mentioned that before. And what I found anecdotally is that the worst thing, and I've seen many fatalities over the year, not as many as you, is that what hurts people the most is when they leave an After Action Review going, I don't understand why they did that. I don't understand why I did that. I don't understand why that happened. It's that It's that failure to make meaning of this tragic event. And instead of going, what can I learn from it? They, they go to a place of injustice. Well, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. What I found is that that's the thing most likely to kill them in the end. Or, or not kill them, certainly destroy them. It's that lingering thing of unfairness or injustice. I have your paper right here. I read it a couple of times. Yeah, no, it's great. And I, and I think just that idea of it isn't fair or unfair. Like, it is what it is. And you're <laughs> going to have to find something in it in order to help you and in your case the people you're training and developing move ahead right no it, it, i think it's a 
a tremendous part of the growth, right? right? You have to have that growth mindset, right? When we, there's so much, I mean, we could, we're hitting all different parts of the brain, but that is part of the mental aspect, right? Yeah. You know, you can have that sprinter that could, you know, go back to football. You could be the fastest guy in the field, right? But tactically, physically, you could, you could have all the tools, but mentally, if you don't have that tool, yeah, you're just another guy sitting on the sideline. That's right. I think about your probies, for example, and, you know, as I've watched a few classes over the years, I think to myself, all of you are likely to have a bad day. And I'm, and when I say that, I mean, our audience knows what we're talking about when we say a bad day, but it's the day that Mark will change your future. It will change the way you see the world. And right now, it doesn't look like that right now, right? Every, you're going to be a hero every single time, but right. sooner or later. And I always think like for folks like you, what can we do for them? Not for them. I'm using the wrong term, but how can we support their ability to be prepared for that day? We've come a long way once again. So we yeah. talked about, I didn't even bring that up. I'm so glad you bring this up. So when I came on the job and I still remember I was at my first fatal fire that I was at. And then the second fate, actually the second fatal fire was actually chief Galvin was a battalion chief. I remember you yeah. time Atlantic Avenue. Yeah. So that, that was my second fatal when I worked as a firefighter. And I think post 9-11, when we talk about the good things that happened, the counseling service unit, right? It was unheard of for someone to walk in a firehouse and say, hey, guy, you want to talk about your problems? And in the beginning, obviously, like anything new, there was some guys, I don't need it. I don't want it, blah, blah, blah. It's such a part of our process now. If there's a line of duty. It's an immediate counseling unit. They're immediately sending people to those firehouses to talk right away, instantly. That did not happen my prior to 9-11. So we are active with that. You know, how you deal with it. We have so much, so much, so much more as far as services and, and reaching out. And now I think we're starting to get to that generation like me. You know, like I talk about it now and the emotion that I'm feeling now, I know I blocked it. Right. I'm a you know, young lieutenant. I, my father's missing. My friends are missing. My, my old companies are missing. You know, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. You know, I got to stay strong. I got to stay strong. But I think my wife, Melissa, God, having her as my partner and you know, being a psychologist, I didn't really value it in the beginning. Yeah. Right. Because young, I'm strong and I don't need that stuff. Now, as, as I get older, I'm like, God, it was like, I think God put her with me for everything that I had to experience. It's powerful. I can get emotional now and it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Where years ago, it's like, wait, no, suck it up type of mentality. Yeah. And it takes me back to our conversation about the kitchen table, right? The old Italian family and the way, you know, my father passed away a few years ago and my great aunt old New England woman, a New England woman who's just seen it from all of it. And she approached me and she grabbed me by the arm and she says, Hey, listen, I know there's a lot going on here when you lose a parent, but here's what I wish for you is that as you move forward, if something's really funny, laugh. And if something's really sad, cry as simple as that is, it's an incredibly powerful advice. And I think that the power of the kitchen table is this shared moment where if you're having a bad day, you can yell, freak out, or whatever, because it's the kitchen table. And I'm saying this because a lot of the people that are listening make the mistake to think that if I'm strong, independent, 
cowboy, it'll be good. But the research keeps showing over and over again that the old Italians, the old Jews, the old whatever, they were actually correct. You actually need a group of people around you, right? Serving you coffee and telling you're awesome and also telling you you suck, right? And letting you rage. Right, right. And and it works at both families because I came from an Italian family and the kitchen tape, right? What's set at the kitchen table stays at the, so it's your safe zone too. That's right. You know, so looking back now, I can say, and I can walk into firehouse now and talk like I'm talking now. Could I do that when I was younger? We didn't have those in place. We didn't have the counseling service unit. We didn't have the elders because basically the counseling services unit are retired, older generation that are coming back and they're our elders now during these difficult times. So I mean, it's perfect, you know, what, how you stated it. It really is, Doc. So when you think about that, and I know this is probably on top of mind for you, and we're seeing this in the military too, right? 20 years of war, the folks that actually fought those battles are now starting to retire. And the FDNY, the folks that were there that day like you are starting to retire. There will be a day where nobody's on the force that was there that day. And, and how do you think about it when you're in the process of developing a new generation who were quite young, maybe when 9-11 happened 20 years ago, maybe not, it's not a living memory like it is for you or in a different way for me. How do you think about that? It's a really good point. The storytelling that we do as far as our instructors, because our instructors, no matter what they're doing, there's always a story involved with it. You know, so there's a technical aspect of it, you know, there's the evolution and then there's a story. You know, what we do with the probies in, in this one situation is they graduated this past Friday. Ten days earlier, we had them at the 9-11 Museum. So every class goes to the 9-11 Museum now. Okay. And they lay a wreath. You know, they march around the pools. They lay a wreath. Half the group tours. The other half go in an auditorium. And the last, I didn't speak this time, but the previous two times I spoke, and I talked about 9-11 yeah. and we had a, a retired firefighter. This time we brought in Dan Nigro. You yeah. Know, yeah. So he's the chief of ops during 9-11, retired fire commissioner. When probie school is like, what do you want to do? I said, you know what? Let's get another person here and let's get a family member that's not that wasn't a firefighter. So this time I sat back to see how it went. The first two times I spoke and this time we brought in um, Kate Levy, a father was lieutenant. He has some transmissions in the South Tower that day that are pretty powerful, you know, cool, calm, and collective. And we had her speak to kind of send the message about what she thinks of the fire service and how the FDNY responded to her family and what it means to her. And the next speaker we brought in was Chief, I call him Chief Nigro, Commissioner Nigro, and he, he was the Chief of Ops. So his, he lost a lot of his friends. Yeah. He, he survived the collapses because he was doing a 360 view. He was walking around. So previously it was me and a, a retired firefighter from Rescue 5 telling our stories. Those were really powerful. I even said, I said, you know, it's coming from two different perspectives now, the fire service and the family. And I think it sends a really good message to our probie. So respect. I love the military. I'm a history buff. And I, I always think of Pearl Harbor. That's why I mentioned the date before. Because we we got to keep it going, right? Yeah. We have to keep it going. We do. And it's it gets harder. It's generational, right? Well, I know I agree. And I, and I know that you host military folks 
teams and training teams quite regularly. And if you're listening and you're part of a, a special operations training command, it, you should, if you're not having a relationship with the with the rock, you probably should. And I would say not just because to come out and be in a burn building, but also to sit around the kitchen table with them and, and let them give you a hard time because there's <laughs> lessons to be learned there as well, sometimes more. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a year or two ago, we were able to interview Chief Mains and Chief of Troge with Wildland Fire. And the period when Wildland Fire came out, during that period and kind of contributed. And those kinds of stories to your point are so interesting to me because it's one thing to have the obvious FDNY perspective, which is so important, but having some folks that are there, but there is not part of your, your tribe, but are, but are trying to help. It, mm-hmm. It's really important to hear their voices too. And so uh, I'm tremendous, just, right? Yeah. Tremendous. But you know, you're talking about the IMT teams yeah. that were created post, you know, we had our USAR model, which my father was a big part of. So we had the USAR teams there, but then the IMT brought in a whole different aspect of that. And, you know, incident command and control and logistics and finance and everything that goes along with the IMT. But once again, we were the FDNY, right? Yeah. And that, and then we, we took that at first and then, wow, we we're like, oh my God. And now that's a big part of the FDNY, the INT. You know, my fascination with your guys' culture is anything that new is proposed, people immediately like, that's the stupidest idea ever. And then what happens is one of you guys decides to champion it, and then then the flywheel catches, and then literally everybody's like, Yeah, we've always done that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you my bucket story. Can yeah. I tell this? I talk when we talk about change, I tell this. I don't know. Whenever there's a change and I have to speak now to one of the classes, whether it's lieutenants, captains, chiefs or probies, I talk about change and I go, here's my story. I go, when they was, they told us we were going to get bunker gear. We all like, no way. We're never going to wear that. We're going to do it. So we got the bunker gear and they didn't give us hoods. And we're like, yeah, we need to know, you know, the heat. We need to feel the heat. We're never going to wear hoods. We got hoods. We were. So wait, this gets, this gets even better. So now, about five years ago, we go into realizing smoke and the carcinogens and the cancer issue that we have in the fire service, yeah. the different type of cancers that, that you know, our, our rates are two, three, four times higher in certain categories. So we say, hey, you know what? Let's, you know, the committee at the time says after every fire, we'll, we'll collect the hoods and wash them because, you know, the throat thyroid was a big issue. Yeah. So we're going to collect the hoods and give a fresh hood, brand new hood right there. Oh, yeah, that's great. Right downtown. I'm not part of committee, but this I'm in the field. Obviously, this is five years ago. And I hear this stuff. I was like, oh, OK, I'm older now. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, everyone's on board with the bunk again. So they try to implement the doc. And guys are like, this is my hood. I'm not giving it back. <laughs> I swear to God. And the program never went through because no one wanted to give their hoods back. I'll tell you, this is a great true story that cracks me up. Yeah. This is my hood. I'm not giving it back to you. Yep. yep. So when you talk about change, I love that. I, love that. <laughs> I got incidentally pulled into women in special operations, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a whole bunch of folks that are like, terrible idea, we're not doing it. So I went to one team and I I happened to know that their intel officer was named Susan, and she had deployed with the, the team, carried a weapon. Right. And I talked to this old grizzled guy and I'm like, hey, what do you think of spe- a women in special operations? Stupidest idea in the world. And you hate America. And I was like, OK, what about Susan? Shut up about Susan. She's with us. I was like, OK, you d- you are aware she is a woman, right? You shut up. That's not what we're talking about. That actually is what we're talking about. It was like the funniest thing. I was like, when they adopt it as there, it becomes a different thing. 
It, it does. And we've come a long way, Doc. That mentality was decades ago, and we're getting so, we're at such a better place now. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That stuff's amazing to me. The, okay, so one of the things I'm going to, we're going to start to wrap this up, and I, and I don't sure. want to close you off, but I, the two things I'm going to ask you about is, one, thinking about the future of the FDNY. And then the next thing I'm going to ask you about is, if you're a trainer out there, right, and you're you're working with anybody, any mission-critical team, and if you could give them some advice on what are your piece of advice for developing young folks to do the job. So I think the first is, as you, if you've seen 30 years, if you looked in your crystal ball and you look 30 years ahead for the FDNY in New York City, what are the kinds of things you see happening? 30 years from now? Yeah. Wow, that's a really good question. Because, uh, like I said, some of the technology, I'm shocked at that we have right now. And presently, we're, we're working with masks and some of the capabilities that they're going to have with the ability to do certain things. So I think... I think accountability with technology for the firefighter itself in the structure, I think that's going to come, come along where I won't have to say, you know, command to Doc Klein, what floor are you on? Where are you located? I'm going to have an, an iPad and you're going to show up fifth floor, 200 feet in on the left hand. You know what I mean? Yep, yep. I think the technology is going to come along in the fire service. I know we recently in the country is electric vehicles going out there. I, I think, I think that's going to be something as far as the apparatus. I think as far as education, because I, I think this is important, especially you know the summit that we had out in San Diego yeah. and Generation Z, and how are we going to educate? Right, because we're tactical athletes. How long can we keep them in the classroom? Because they grew up on iPads, they smart boards, TikTok. All short, you know, the algorithms are all built yeah. for short attention spans. So we're going to have to shrink down classroom time. And this is something I'm going through now. But what what is it going to be in 30 years where you can't be physically active for nine hours in the academy, eight hours in the academy, but you can't be 40-minute classes anymore either because we're losing them, right? We're losing them with 40, you know, if you look at a traditional 40-minute class. So we're, we're grappling with this now and we're, we're, we're trying to figure out where we're going with the probies. Are we going to reduce classroom time, increase evolution time, or incorporate something with a technology aspect? But we're trying to be pro, you know, we're really trying to be proactive and the leaders in this. And this is, these are the discussions that we've had with our committee. So it's a really good point. And I'm just, this is what I care about, so I can't help but jump it in. At any point, sir, you should come out and come to one of our courses just as my guest. And the reason I say that is because I think that it's not necessarily always a choice between do we cut down the 40 minutes or do we get rid of the 40 minutes? I think what we've found with every population is keep the 40 minutes, but change the modality within that. So what I mean by that is you know, the TED Talk, that 18 to 21 minutes of what people can tolerate being lectured at, I think is pretty true. However, you can do a lecture followed by reflection, followed by shared talk, followed by paired talk where two people are solving a problem, an experiential exercise. There's like a zillion different things you can cram into 40 minutes where they're moving from station to station in that 40 minutes, but they're still getting academic content. And so, I wanted for the audience just to say, I don't think there's a trade between the traditional education we went to in high school where someone lectured to us for th- for 40 minutes or right. outside. I think there's a middle ground where we can engage the different parts of the brain in that 40 minutes 
almost like a number of different kinds of evolutions like you do out in the fire academy, but in that 40 minutes that will optimize and make it much more efficient, the delivery of the academic knowledge that they have. And I say all of that because I don't want anyone who's listening to think that the lesson about the next generation is that we need to turn everything into TikTok. That's not actually really good for your brain. We actually, what we need to do is expand their neuroplasticity so they can tolerate listening for longer periods of time. I think we need to be more efficient and effective. Some of those old lectures sucked and they still suck. And they should, you know what I mean? Like they were bad, they're still bad. But we, we, we are definitely getting away from PowerPoint to death. So yeah. we're not doing a 40 minute PowerPoint. So we're, but everything that you just said, I actually wrote down some things that, that I'm going to implement them, you know, yeah. cut down the PowerPoint, which we did, but add the story time. Yeah. Yes. No, so neuroplasticity. I mean, this is great information that you're saying. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a balance, right? Because at the end of the day, the truth is, and this is the hard part for a lot of people is. If there's a kid joining the FDNY, they are joining the FDNY, the FDNY is not joining them. And why that matters is because if I'm a mother of a child trapped in a burning building, I actually don't care about your feelings. I don't care your learning style. I don't care about, you know, your learning profile. I don't care. I care about your ability to get my kid out of the burning building. Full stop. Nothing else matters. I don't care about your gender, your race, your age, your size. Don't care. It's a one zero proposition. My kid comes out of the fire or my kid doesn't. Yes. And so I think as, as leaders in our cultural institutions like firefighter organizations, there's that really hard balance between meeting the needs of a changing evolution and getting better, Sure. but not forgetting there is a bottom line here. Yeah, no, we still have to go. Like you said, we still have to run into that burning building and come out. Yeah. With someone that will change, yeah, that will change, yeah. yeah but that what you just talked about was really that's really good. I actually took some notes down, okay, uh, because I think that's a lot of discussion that we're having now as far as trying to keep the attention span and implementing different exercises, right? I think there's super simple ways to do it, and I'm happy to support in any way. But that's that's another conversation, another time. What I'd like to think about now is over 30 years of different experiences that you've talked about, you know, from different folks. And now as your chief of training and development, when you think about the young people who've made the really courageous and patriotic decision to join an organization, to be a service to their community, in this case, New York city. And you think, man, they've got a lot of raw, raw talent, but they need to be developed. And you think about when you're talking to your cadre, your instructor cadre, what are the big principles that you try to pass on to them from your perspective? Yeah, you know, I I do speak to instructors all the time, you know, especially before probate class starts, but even when we have the other classes. And I, I think it's, you kind of hit it on the head, right? These young individuals, that you know, they're, they're raising their hand, they're taking that oath. And that oath is very simple, right? I'm going to protect life and property you know, for us, the citizens of New York. So in that process, what I would have to tell instructors, and I still do, is because I was never that guy in the firehouse throwing those heavy shots. I was more of a, a coach. I, could, I I like my analogy when I was a firefighter. I was more of a, I had that coaching leadership style. You know, I wasn't that autocratic. Sure. So I think my coaching style is what I still impart. Yeah, they're going to make mistakes. 
you know, you're not going to beat them to death. You got to be hard because this, this academy has to be difficult. Yeah. We can't go soft. You have to be accepting. You have to acknowledge that they're going to make mistakes and you can't overwhelm them with information, right? Some of these kids don't know anything about anything. You know, when it comes to the fire service, they just, like you said, they, they said, oh, I'm going to become a firefighter. Once again, we go back to that, that base of humility yeah. and trying to put yourself at that level and how you're going to impact them, right? Because that's the whole thing. How are you going to impact them to motivate them that they trust you, right? So that your communication is going to sink in and they're going to be able to take that to a physical productive level, right? So when I talk to instructors, I, I, I basically talk like how I'm talking now. Yeah, it's got to be difficult, but you got to get your message across. And how you get your message is important. You know, screaming and yelling doesn't always work, right? We, we know that. Being soft doesn't always work either. And I think what probing school implemented before I was even there, that instructor that comes in, no matter what their background is, they got to stay for at least three classes. And their philosophy is you come in, no matter what your background is, you could have been a teacher, you could have been a coach, you learn how we do it here. And then the second class, you get a little better. And then the third class, you might be a lead now of the other instructors in that particular team. So I think it's a really good process that they set up before me as we talk about instructor communicating, they're learning that. So when that new instructor comes in, there's, a, there's an instructor that's been there now third, maybe fourth class yeah. and taking cues, you know, those verbal cues, those visual cues that he's going to or she's going to pass on. So it, it is a it's a big animal they have going on over there. Do you think, and I don't mean to to try to load this question, but do you think that folks that have been through the, the academy as instructors who've done those three tours, those four tours, end up being better leaders for the FDNY? Without a doubt. Okay. I don't even have to hesitate, without a doubt. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, because you're setting yourself back down from where you started, right? And, you know, I still I still go out there and do evolutions. I put my gear on. I, I jump in evolutions. If the, there could be a drill going on, I'll, I'll go in the smokehouse. I'll do the physical skills testing, you know, the obstacle course, just to stay kind of current. Just those days that I do that, I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. I pick up things that, you know, I, I got, you know, 30 plus years on, but I'm still picking up things. So that you do that repetitions. You're doing that evolution. You're doing those evolutions, class after class after class. You're learning those verbal cues. You're learning how to connect and how not to connect, right? Now, that's not working, okay? And you're getting that. So you're not getting time in the field, but you're getting time in being a leader, which I think with, I didn't have to hesitate with that. Without a doubt, they're better. That's what we're seeing, I think, with all the teams is the ones that go to the schoolhouse and do well, not just go there, but go there and oh, do well. Oh, do well, right. They they end up being uh, much better leaders moving forward. Yeah. And so as we begin to close, and you know the audience, is there any other closing thoughts or or things you sort of want to think about when it comes to developing folks to become members of mission critical teams, whether military or medicine or fire or even NASA? Yeah, I, I think staying humble that you have to learn. I think my experience is obviously. Ex- experience is great and repetitions are great, but you don't always get them. So, you know, we're big on simulations, right? We're big on scenario driven events and, and we have some classrooms, some very basic to out in the buildings, you know, with like a real fire going on with real emergencies. So I think simulations, 
as far as instructors and getting to that next level is extremely important. And we, we, like I said, we do it in the classroom. We created a simulation unit now. So besides whether you're, you know, a probie, a lieutenant, a captain, a chief, and you go through different classroom simulations and evolution simulations, we actually have a simulation now where we, we can take a structure or a building or an incident, put it on paper, and they can use their smartphone, their iPad, and there's a facilitate sheet to hit certain boxes so that you can drill. So we took simulations to the next level now. Awesome. You know, so because it is it is about the reps and it is about there's so many variables flying at you. And how do you respond to those variables is, is the ones that really yeah. uh, do well. That's awesome. Well, sir, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. It's tremendous. I'll be listening to this a few times over and just always a great honor to spend time with you. Oh, Doc, it's always great speaking with you. And I keep sending me your papers because I actually have the one all marked up, not the after action one, but you know, your wife, because I was like, all right, we have to implement some of this stuff that we need to do, right? Because it's all about educating and learning from others, right? And and you're teaching us. So uh, thank you for that. Keep sending me your stuff. I'll, I'll see you up here in June. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that, sir. Thank hey, you we'll very do, much. We'll, we'll do the functional skills test. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Count me in. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Stay safe, brother. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson at Janice at MissionCTI.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at MissionCTI.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.